Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Think Positive's brand new podcast series with me, Rena Staves. In this episode, we'll be addressing racism and mental health. I was thinking about which direction to take with this podcast episode, because racism is such a vast topic, and I didn't just want to skim the surface. I wanted this episode to be useful and have a function. I wanted you to go away thinking about some practical things you can do to firstly understand the perspective of people who experience racism, and secondly, maybe even improve inclusivity in your own practices through some of the things you learn and hear about in this episode. We're all still learning though, so don't worry if this is the first time you're engaging with the topic. First of all, I thought we'd start off with a bit about me my background and why I chose to cover this topic. As a woman of South Asian heritage, racism is something that I've had to endure my entire life. I grew up in a predominantly white working class town in South Yorkshire and for some reason, you know, many people are very surprised to know this about me but I had a white stepdad and my mum, of course, is a South Asian goddess truly. Honestly, I wasn't really in tune to other people's perceptions of my skin colour and the stereotypes ascribed to it as a child. And I think I attribute that to my lovely stepdad who sadly passed away when I was young because it never felt like I was different and it was just never commented on. But I'm not sure the lack of conversation around race in my home was necessarily a good thing for me at that time because it really didn't equip me for what was to come. As I grew older, racism became more prominent and an almost permanent fixture of life, sadly. I think something I found very difficult to accept, and you know, we're really getting into it now, is the disparity in education in terms of how I was treated versus my white peers. A couple of instances really do stick with me like I remember being about five years old in primary school and I could read books beyond the band that I was assigned but I wasn't allowed to progress and I told my mum who was you know adequately raging but honestly my teachers just didn't seem to want to acknowledge me which was very sad but listener I resorted to reading them in secret (laughs) But I shouldn't have had to have done that, you know, I often wonder about my potential if someone had just given me that boost. There was also the lack of support or mentorship, which from research we all know is vital to young people and their success. I remember being moved down a set in GCSE Maths during one of the most formative times of my educational journey, I suppose. and. I was genuinely heartbroken because others in my group, you know, several grades below me. So what was the rationale behind choosing me, the only person of South Asian heritage? Well, I worked so hard and got an A to prove the teacher wrong, which was great. But my confidence was shattered for no reason at all. And I'm pretty sure this was the reason that caused me to develop such crippling perfectionism. But, you know, I can laugh about it now because I've worked through it and, uh, yeah, moved on. Or so it seems from that bitter outburst. <laughs> but I suppose 
One of the reasons I wanted to give you a bit of a background on myself there was because in coming to terms with these memories and how I've had to navigate an inherently racist education system my entire life, it was a catalyst for me wanting to create this episode. I'm definitely improving in my ability to speak about and address racism, even call people out. But when I address the topic of racism or anti-racism with white friends, peers or colleagues or even my family, you know, the majority of whom are people of a South Asian heritage, I often feel a sort of chasm of awkwardness open up and it sort of engulfs my very existence. Not gonna lie. No, but you know where I'm going. So it's definitely been a process for me and I'm still coming to terms with how to deal with the impact of past instances of racism even now. And I think with recent events propelling racism and anti-racism to the forefront of discussions both on social media and off, I felt it was so important to explore the topic further and in particular how it interacts with and affects student mental health. Racism has been catapulted into the centre of our consciousness recently, propelled arguably by the death of George Floyd earlier this year and events following that in the form of protests and other conscious raising events. Something I was thinking a lot about during this surging coverage was the link between racism and mental health. During lockdown, I found myself spending longer than usual focusing too much energy on my anxieties. They were heightened to an abnormal degree due to this enforced isolation and loneliness. And when the world focused its attention on racism, it almost felt like another wound had been opened and I had to deal with that too. I wondered if other people who experienced racism felt the same. And I wanted to explore what that could mean for our young people. In an article with the BBC, Lola J reflected on the implications of racism on black people's mental health. She wrote, The experience of racism, both direct and indirect, in the form of microaggressions or exposure to racism by the media, can have a devastating effect on the mental health of black people. This effect, known as racial trauma, can lead to depression, hypervigilance, chronic stress and fatigue, bodily inflammation and symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. And we'll get back to this topic later. What I found incredibly interesting when I was researching for this episode was the facts and statistics of mental ill health affecting specific groups of individuals who experience racism. You'll hear me saying the phrase people who experience racism quite a lot in this episode. Since editing this episode, My learning of anti-racism and self-education has led me down a path which suggests that using the acronym BAME isn't the term I'd prefer. I think it unjustifiably shoehorns a diverse, broad spectrum of groups into one category. Secondly, I'm not comfortable being labelled as a BAME woman, as this others me. So I'm trying to be a bit more inclusive with my language. And of course, any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Please let me know if I can do better. I definitely have a lot of work to put in when it comes to my vocabulary surrounding racism. If you're interested in learning more about expanding your vocabulary too, I recently found a useful resource developed by Ink Arts UK as part of their hashtag BAMEOVER campaign, 
which I'll share in the description of this episode along with other resources that are talked about in this episode. So, facts and statistics. There were so many shocking findings that I came across that I honestly didn't know where to begin, but I thought I'd share the ones that stuck with me. For example, the risk of psychosis in black Caribbean groups is estimated to be nearly seven times higher than in the white population. And within the South Asian community in England and Wales, research has indicated that older South Asian women seem to be an at-risk group for suicide. Now, these are just two statistics out of a myriad, but you can follow up on these if you want to in the resources section that I share. So, how can we bring this back and focus on the implications on this for our students? And what's the picture like in Scotland? When I was conducting my research on racism in Scotland, I found surprisingly very little, but what I did come across created a kind of depiction of a culture of silence in Scotland. In an article in The Guardian, David Chukwujekwu speaking about racism in Scotland summed it up perfectly. He said, There's not the same provision here in Scotland as there is perhaps in places like London. We've got this extra hurdle of figuring out who we are as black people. There are about five black people in my school at any one time. A mixed race friend of mine in Inverness was called Black Ben. He was half Indian and he was called Black Ben. That's what Scotland's like. He says, there's like a culture of silence that isn't conducive to the mental health of people of color. So what can institutions do to support students who experience racism? Well, I spoke to my friend and former colleague Santana Gopalakrishnan to find out more. So yeah, can you tell us a bit about your work and your areas of interest? Yeah, so I currently work in a UK university. Um, uh, A part of my job, I I do quite a few things um, in my job and a part of it is actually anti-racism training for students um, in the university. So the training we deliver is for all new students and we have a range of sessions that we encourage them to attend. Um, We have a five minute film that we show during the welcome talks when they come to university um, explaining certain things that they might um, not know. Mm. And, you know, just examples such as, you know, how racism, like how it is in society, And then we encourage them to attend a lecture mm-hmm. where we then discuss further on these topics. Mm-hmm. And then in the accommodation, when they've you know, gone through six months of university and got settled down a little bit, experienced the student, student life um, for a while, we then invite them to attend a workshop mm-hmm. on racism. Mm-hmm. And we use examples and scenarios of our daily lives that we normally don't think about. For example, how Stormzy is treated in the UK and how Gary Neville was treated in the UK when he spoke about racism and the disparity between the treatment of both men of similar, you know, similar backgrounds and similar upbringing. And um, we try to relate as much as we can to students. So the content is very much so current issues. So yeah, so that's, that's the majority stuff that I do at uh, my workplace. And what led you to pursue this career path? Oh, um, when I came here eight years ago, you know, 
people never saw me as pain. People never saw me as a brown person. They saw me as a Malaysian. I saw myself as a Malaysian. You always see that um, international students be put before uh, BAME, and BAME was predominantly a term used for British people. So until we became sabbatical officers, I think that was when both of us realized that we were actually in this category that no one really talks about. And yeah, and just, you know, coming through things where some people, you know, I, Oh, one of our former colleagues called me black and, and I was very confused because I was like, I'm, I'm not black and I realized that that is a very outdated term that people use here because there is either black or white so everybody who was not white went into the term as black and I think you know I have issues with that term 100% have issues with that term being used um, as an umbrella term for everybody but what really led me to do this work was the fact that I started seeing myself as a South Asian. I started seeing myself as a from a cultural sense. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a country where structural racism is so normalized. Really? It is literally the norm mm -hmm. to be discriminated against. Mm -hmm. The majority get discounts on housing, discounts, rebates. You know, and, and the minority don't. Um, we, you know, Indians, like my parents worked really hard. My parents were working class. They worked really hard to get to where they are to allow us to experience a good life and get everything that we needed, which they didn't um, growing up because they grew up pre-independence, pre which was like pre-57, 1957. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I had the luxury of learning English when I was very young, and that was number one. Like, the, I know for a fact that that was a catalyst in my privileged life, like in Malaysia, is learning the fact that I learned English from a very young age, and the fact that you know I had I had you know all the education that I needed, like help in education that I needed, I got it. So that definitely helped, you know, push, basically, make my skin color not the reason why I wouldn't succeed, kind of thing. So I was very lucky to have that privilege. Not every Indian has that privilege in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So when you come here, you come, when I came to the UK, I assumed that those things don't exist. I was met with a very, very harsh reality that they do. So I think, especially after being with a white person, because my partner's white, you know, Corey's white, you realize that the treatment is very different. <laughs> So, you know, when, for example, if you are with someone of your own skin color mm. and, and race. So all that put together has made me think, oh, maybe I should do more work in this. So I started reading up and um, educating myself and someone saw some potential in me and decided to put me forward for this job. It's a very long-winded answer. I'm very sorry. No, it's really <laughs> interesting. And going back to the um, training that you deliver, is it... Um, attended by all of the freshers or is it kind of like they can op opt in if they want to kind of thing so the word compulsory is very taboo i think and it's always been an issue even when we were sabbatical officers we we tried to get some training to be made compulsory didn't we uh but people were very against the word compulsory because it has a very negative connotation we highly encourage them to we try to push out you know every benefit in my opinion i think is really well attended 
um, in our pilot, we had over 9,000 students watch the film. And that's more than the freshers, that's including continuing students as well, who decided that, yes, I'm going to put my time, I'm going to watch this. And it was very, very good. Um, the lectures and the workshops, the workshops was actually cut short because of COVID. With lectures, it was actually very well attended. It was, a, it was an opt-in and 3,500 out of 5,000 students opted in, which I thought is, is brilliant, you know, because students knew what was going to be discussed and they wanted to be in that environment. They had a lot to say about what the content was and their feedback, but the point is it got them there and it got them talking and that's what we wanted. Our main idea for the con for the work that we do is we're not telling people what to think or believe we encourage freedom of speech but we also wanted to progress race equality as well it's allowing people an hour of their time to just sit and reflect about a particular topic that they probably wouldn't mm. in their daily lives and i think that's really important for people to understand that it's really it's just a space for us to actually put aside to think about race equality not have floating thoughts which are like five seconds and then you never think about ever again and you mentioned that uh you received a lot of feedback or that people had a lot to say about it what was the kind of the general feel of those comments was it kind of like you know interest in the topic a willingness to engage people are very colorful to put it in, you know, in context and also in personalities. Mm -hmm. I think everyone has lang different language choices. Some of them were conveyed very politely and very constructive. Some of them were just very honest about how they felt. Okay. Either way, we encouraged their opinions because it got them talking. It must have made you feel something to click on that feedback form and then say what you thought. We highly encouraged our students to give feedback and um, I think we received more than 15% of um, feedback from the students, which really made the report very valid yeah. um, in statistic terms. But um, there was a lot of resistance to white, the section on white privilege, which we, we, we all you know, saw it coming. I think the word privilege is very, very, um, it's, it's associated with wealth. So you get a lot of people from working class backgrounds that think, oh, I can't be privileged because I came from a working class background, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying that you're walking down the road, an elderly person won't be clutching the bags, you know, and those kind of privilege. But people don't see that as a privilege. People see that as a norm, mm -hmm. but what they, at that point, probably didn't really understand that that's not the norm for some people. The norm for those people are people clutching their handbags or crossing the road when they see, when they see, you know, people who look like them. Yeah, I see. And what would you say is the state of racism at the moment in higher education? Have we made, have we made progress or is there still a long way to go? I think we've made progress. I think there's definitely some progress. We have to start somewhere, you know. Um, so there's always been cases of racism in universities. It's just that we never attempted to capture it. Right. Uh, you know, 
we all know that students have always said that the reporting systems are not adequate enough uh -huh. and you know the staff are not trained enough they're not experienced in dealing with cases such as racism they're not they don't feel that there are any spaces safe spaces for them to to explore these issues yeah so we have made progress i mean there are lots of universities who are subscribed to the platform called report and support which allows people to report any incidents um either with their personal details or anonymous mm -hmm. and um and it does help make reporting incidents a lot easier but i think i do feel that is a support part where the universities universities need to improve on mm -hmm. for example i think there's a, there's a major need to get student support staff to be trained especially student facing staff mm -hmm. A diversity in staff that's number one thing as well um, and then ensuring and this is my bit where I feel quite passionate about is ensuring disciplinary procedures and regulations are fit for purpose we need to ensure that the disciplinary teams are trained and educated to be more confident in dealing with um, disciplinaries or complaints relating to racism because I think one of the reasons why we fall apart when it comes to like cases of racism or when a student puts in a complaint is that you don't have your procedures are not fit to be adapted into like a case relating racism because it's almost always a he said she said basis you don't have you know a concrete like you know levels of sanctions that you would particularly place and i think that's where universities probably need to um, improve on but you know we focus a lot on the bame attainment gap and it's almost you know it's always on the academic success student experience but what we need to also reflect on is the culture that our universities have at the moment culture change is 100 percent one of the reasons why the bame attainment gap is low or high um but i don't understand why when we map a student journey we don't include instances where a student is forced to make a report forced to make a complaint because of something that's happened because it does you know it does happen in many students lives where they then you know use a platform like report and support and stuff to to lodge a report or a complaint mm -hmm. and if we don't include these experiences of a student say they do choose to make a complaint about a racist incident what is the student journey from there you don't see that you know i've been in meetings where you know like for example as a bachelor office we've mapped out student journeys before i know i didn't include complaints and procedures in them because I never thought about it. You include careers, you include post-graduation, you even think three years after they graduate, but you don't think that for once in their three years here, they will have to put a report. No. So that disciplinary part is never, we don't know if it's supportive enough. We don't know if it's inclusive enough for everybody. And what do you think institutions could be doing to support their students' mental health when it comes to racism and discrimination? It might sound selective, but I would like to see more BAME counsellors. Uh, I think, and this comes back to mental health, if a student's stressor is racism, and if that's what's making them feel down, feel low, and something has happened to them, if, if overt racism has occurred, the last thing they would probably want to do is to enter a room 
and speak to a counsellor who might not who might be the same race as the aggressor and i think people can take offense to that quite a lot saying that but what does my skin color have to do with that but what people don't understand is you think with your eyes as well yeah. you know what you experience you can come through that ptsd the ptsd always happens when it's triggers with 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 sight as well so i think that's probably number one you know put more effort into hiring diverse counselors. Pay attention to your procedures. Like I said earlier, are they fit for purpose? Make sure that all your policies that you start doing from now have an equality impact assessment. An equality impact assessment does not only benefit BAME students, also benefits students from an LGBT background, you know, trans students. So you have disabled students, so you have a good assessment where you can just make sure that everyone is represented and included in the process and every single person has been thought about make sure your staff members are trained that's one thing that people don't understand as well just because you train your staff members doesn't mean that they are confident in delivering their work yeah. make sure that they're confident in delivering their work as well you can go vice versa they can be confident about delivering delivering their work but they're not they're not trained enough but if they're trained enough they might not be confident to do that as well so it, goes hand in hand and last but not least take student complaints seriously take all the open letters that you get seriously um, stop passing it off as banter it's not always banter we know that universities can't change racism in society we know you can't change society but you can change your institution and you can change and you can acknowledge it and if you do something about it the rest will follow. Someone needs to start, the rest will follow. And I think a lot of people always, and a lot of organizations in general, are always scared to be the pioneer. But what they don't understand is if someone starts, you can always improve on your next versions and your next, the next group that comes along. But, you know, introducing report, like proper reporting plat platforms does you know it does mean that statistics will go up statistical harassment will go up but that doesn't mean that you've got more cases all of a sudden and that doesn't mean that the incidents are going up it doesn't mean that students are now more comfortable with the with the reporting systems that you've introduced and you're actually getting a better picture of how your university truly is mm -hmm. i think that should be taken as a good thing not a bad thing yes you should be worried if the numbers don't look good but take the, those numbers and do something about it. What do you think is the link between racism and mental health? Like research has already shown that racism is a form of stress. And this is um, one of the researches by Kane Griffith, 2017. And it is a stress, it's a form of stressor, both in extreme forms and also in its microaggression uh, form as well. The triggers can result in pessimism, difficulties, recovering from the trauma, what people don't understand is you know trauma comes in many ways and racism is just one of the aspects of it you know it's it's a harmful situation that you're in and when you're in a harmful situation trauma does exist and the fact that then like for example and i can't speak for everybody but for me it would put me in edge you know i'll be living in fear and i think that's something that not many people think about you know it's just like everyone says racism is like a paper cut microaggression is like a paper cut every time you get for the person who said it is just that one time 
for the person who's receiving it, who's heard it multiple times, they would have lots more, lots more paper cuts than the person who said it. And that's what people always forget. If you say something microaggressive and someone calls you out on it, you learn, you move on. But the person who is on the receiving end would have heard it multiple times. And that creates trauma. And that then causes low mood. That causes depression. That causes anxiety. And it does bring anxiety because you start getting social anxiety. What if the next person's racist you? How are you meant to trust anyone again? So that does, you know, being a target, it does affect your mental health. And it's also the way that the being people are treated as well stems from structural racism. I mean, being people are represented in poverty, unemployment, housing, and overcrowded schools. And these instances impact on their mental health as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, if you nip this from the bud, as people say, like within schools, research does show that Black Caribbean and Black British students in schools are more prone to being excluded from schools. And that then contributes to antisocial behavior and criminal activity. But that's because they never felt included in schools. If you put them in overcrowded schools, they're not gonna get the attention that they truly deserve for them to reach their potential, for them to realize their potential. So, yeah, you're, you mentioned earlier your training and the resources that you offer to new students and staff. In your opinion, how receptive are institutions to taking on board the training mm-hmm. that you deliver? I mean, my institution, took it, they, I mean, everyone's taken it really well and that's why it's continuing, um, I think. I'm, pretty sure <laughs> and you know it's um, it's been a good first step like I said earlier you have to start somewhere if you don't start anywhere you won't learn mm. and that's what we did we decided to take the plunge um, we thought really carefully and we thought right let's give this a go if it doesn't happen we'll take the feedback we'll do something else mm. according to what the students say but if you don't do something students have nothing to compare to and then when you ask someone what they want they, they don't some people don't know what they want so if you put something forward then ask them, is this what you're looking for? How do you want us to improve on this? Then they tell us, oh yes, we'll do this. And we continue to improve uh, based on the feedback. The feedback form is literally open the whole time. It's never been closed. Mm-hmm. So every time students, students um, go through the training, we open the feed, we basically send them the feedback form and say, can you please give feedback? So we always have feedback coming in. And um, the training has been so receptive. We started delivering it to society leaders in uh, the students' union. We started delivering to sports committees in our university, and also casual other casual student staff um, in the university as well. I've requested it. Um, I was actually very surprised to see that you know the more people heard about it, there there were even like departments who thought the training was available for staff who wanted it as well, but. I only deliver training to students and uh, staff facilities as well. So, you know, it's, it's nice to see that it's in demand, but it's also difficult to see how much we actually need it. That's interesting. Do you have any resources that you can direct us to, to help us learn more about understanding students' experiences? In terms of understanding student experience, there's a really good, piece of uh, work done by Katie Sean from University of York 
called Being Black in a White World, Understanding Racism in British Universities. And this uh, is a really good piece of work that was written. So it definitely is good uh, for you to look at. We also have the study by the Equality and Human Rights Commission that has been used quite widely at the moment on racial discrimination called Tackling Racial Harassment, University Challenged. Uh, also again, Water University's UK's group on tackling racial harassment that's led by Professor Chris Richardson from the University of East Anglia. But in general, if you want to learn more about anti-racism, in general, racism in society, um, visit the Good Housekeeping website. Uh, they have a good article called 15 Movies About Race to Start the Conversation. And in that you will see some reference to movies from Spike Lee. Spike Lee is a really, really good um, director who often has, uh, includes the racial tension um, narrative in his uh, movies and his storytelling. That's really useful. I can't go without mentioning this. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race uh, by Renée Lodge. She is recently the number one author in the country, number one best-selling author in the country. Wow. And, and she's got a book, a blog, and a podcast of the same name. So give her some love and some attention. She deserves it. She is amazing. Uh, book and series, uh, David Olusoga came out with a book called Black and British, A Forgotten History, um, relating people back to um, the history of uh, black people in the UK. Um, he has a book and a TV series of the same name as well. And also uh, British by Aqua Hirsch. And that talks about her experience as a black person in the UK. Wow, so many interesting resources. I'm intrigued yeah. by the one on um, black British history because I feel like talking about racism, some of the conversations I've had with people, they're like, oh, isn't that just a thing in America? Yeah, you know, you know, like there's a lot of people who say, at least in America, we know it's racism. Yeah, it's in your face, but in the UK, it's not in your face. It's so subtle. Mm. It's so subtle that people think it's just normal. You know, that's how hard things have always been. Like, you know, just just using slurs used to be the norm. Yeah, and I came across quite a few people who asked me, "Why can't I say it? I could say it in the '60s. I can't say it anymore." But that's because we didn't have the power to say no then. You know, we have the power to say no now. Yeah. We're empowered to say no now. You can't use those words on us. So I think that's what people don't understand. Like racism and power goes hand in hand as well. So let's bring this back. What can we do to tackle or combat racism in Scotland? at our institutions and what can we do to support our students? Thinking about our student mental health agreements and what are the next steps? Well, based on my limited research, I've come up with several recommendations that you can take forward if you like and if your institution has the resources to enable you to do so to ensure greater race equity in your student mental health agreement. Please also note that I am not a trained medical individual or someone accredited with advice giving qualifications, sadly. So the recommendations below are really just meant to offer some insights 
into what you can pursue if you want to, uh, and then not an exhaustive list. When I was trying to bring everything together and offer you some concrete examples of things you can do next, something that kept coming up in my research was the notion of culturally appropriate support. And here's recommendation one. Translating your support or providing interpreters where possible. Language barriers we know are a huge challenge for some people whose first language isn't always English. Language barriers we know are a huge challenge for people whose first language isn't always English. According to the Race Equality Foundation, for minority ethnic Eastern European communities, cultural misunderstandings and a lack of understanding of the healthcare system might affect their engagement with healthcare services in general and could impact on access to mental health support. So, when you're promoting the support available to students, can you provide these in a different language, maybe? Recommendation two, when you're planning events, what about turning your attention to art and mental health? For some cultures, talking about mental health is considered deeply taboo. And hosting arts events could be a really great way for people to connect with their emotions without having to engage in explicit conversations about it. Recommendation three, increasing the ethnic diversity of staff. To me, this makes sense. If you experience racism, chances are you'd feel more comfortable talking to someone who would have some understanding of what you've been through, as it's likely they've been through it themselves, although I can only speak for myself there. Increasing the ethnic diversity of staff may also ensure that you're representing your student demographic. Our fourth recommendation would be training. It's vital that everyone confronts their unconscious biases and works to unpack the stereotypes or prejudice they might have accrued. Training can sometimes be an incredibly useful tool to help everyone tackle this and move forward. Finally, speak to your students. Ask them what would help them. It's so easy to assume that we all know what students want, but really we can be so out of touch sometimes. And that's okay, speaking to your students builds trust develops channels of support and ensures that you're providing the support that your students need and that's all the recommendations that we have. I hope you found this episode useful and insightful. If you have any questions about any of the issues raised feel free to get in touch with me. Also if you have any feedback uh, I'm always interested to know what my loyal listeners think. Uh, You can email me at rena.staves.com at nus-scotland.org.uk. Thanks very much and I'll see you for the next episode in November where we'll be delving into the depths of loneliness. I'll see you soon.